Future City is made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to this, our fourth episode of Future City, a show that reframes the question of what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next. Each month, we look to another U.S. city that's doing something innovative and ask whether that idea could work here. Our first three episodes explored community schools in Cincinnati, decriminalized weed in Denver, and veteran homelessness in Riverside, California. And you can listen back at all those episodes at wypr.org slash future city. Now this month, we come to the end of a year in which fatal police shootings of people across this country, mainly men, mainly black, and mainly unarmed, have made headlines on a sometimes weekly basis. A report last year by the nonprofit Treatment Advocacy Center analyzed government data on police shootings and mental illness and found that at least a quarter, one-fourth, and probably more like half of all fatal police encounters and the lives of individuals with severe mental illness. Now what's more, it costs far less to put nonviolent individuals with mental illness into treatment than to put them in jail, far less meaning diversion programs are both more humane and more cost-effective. Today, cities, police departments, and behavioral health workers from across the country are looking for better ways to work together to respond to people in crisis. We know some of the big-picture contributors to this problem will be necessary but hard to fix. I'm talking about everything from the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow handed down in the form of entrenched personal and structural racism to the militarization of lack of training among, and problematic protocols for local law enforcement. Two, the culture of gun violence in this country. But there's enormous hope out there too, and cities across the country as diverse as Memphis and Los Angeles are now modeling initiatives that are helping to take a big bite out of the problem of police responding with violence to people in mental distress in their jurisdictions. Across the country, a growing number of cities are investing in CIT, or Crisis Intervention Teams, training for law enforcement officers and other first responders to people in crisis. In San Antonio, Texas, 1,600 miles southwest of Baltimore, an exciting 10-year-old approach is making a huge difference. Our first guest today, joining us by phone from San Antonio, is Officer William Kasberg of the San Antonio Police Department's Mental Health Unit. Officer Kasberg, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Mr. Moore, it's my pleasure. And thank you for having us. And from San Antonio, Texas, we really appreciate you reaching out to us. Now, Officer Kasberg, I know you have a, a connection to an experience here in Baltimore, and we're going to get to that a little later in the hour. But, uh, but I also want to explain the, uh, the, the, the relatively shaky phone connection we have right now. You're not sitting in an office talking to us. Uh, you're on the street. Can you tell us a bit about your morning right now? I can, and, and I apologize for this connection. Um, I don't sit in an office. My office actually is a Ford Explorer unmarked police car, and I'm actually coming from a call for service right now. That ended fa- fairly well, uh, actually. Walk us through this morning and, and how, this, uh, how this incident took place. Um, I actually received a phone call from our local mental health authority um, saying we've got an emerging call to go on. We had a gentleman, a mother, calling into the crisis line requesting help for her 20-year-old son. Uh, when I arrived on scene... The counselor approached me and said that this gentleman really needs some help. The mother's calling and crying, saying that her son has been setting things on fire inside the home, 
last week, I guess, he allegedly kind of pushed and struck uh, the 11-year-old child. I don't know the details on that, but police were called to that situation. He's been criminally trespassing in one of the local uh, chain stores, uh, so he's putting himself at risk for inappropriate arrest. Uh, and then more, more troubling is that due to his illness, he's actually been touching himself inappropriately and uh, really causing a lot of alarm in the apartment complex that they currently live in. Why were you called for this specific situation? And, and what becomes the criteria in a case that you would get called versus a, a, another traditional uh, police officer in a situation like this? It sounds like everything this person doing, you could put him in jail for this. You could put him in jail for right. criminal trespass. The flashing of himself to a passerby that would be cause anybody to be alarmed. Um, and more importantly, you know, maybe pushing uh, his younger sibling. Uh, but the reality is that we have more insight um, through our training that we realize that this person would serve better um, both to his family, to himself, and to the community if he was put into services. So with that, because if he was to go to jail, it not only would it cost the taxpayers an extreme amount more money, uh, but also he would deteriorate and decompensate uh, so much more. And when we speak of criteria, there's certain things. I mean, uh, police officers are governed across this nation by protocol and procedures and, and things of that nature. When it comes to mental health, uh, at least in Texas, only a peace officer, a magistrate, or a guardian can actually take somebody against their will to get them into services. So that criteria usually is one of three things. Either suicidal, uh, the person is homicidal. Uh, in other words, they're having thoughts of wanting to hurt someone or actually kill them. Or third, uh, they're demonstrating what we refer to as mental decompensation uh, to the point where they can't be left at liberty. Not that they're acting on it, but they're just not able to care for themselves. And it gives the peace officer of Texas that authority to actually get them into services. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore, and I'm talking by phone uh, with Officer William Kasberg, who's part of a special mental health unit, uh, not just doing great work uh, on, a, on a larger basis within San Antonio, but actually just coming off a call uh, right now. And, and you have been an officer for over 22 years, but for the past 10 years, you've been working specifically with, you, with this unit. And, and 10 years ago, you did something called CIT training that spoke to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you were first introduced into CIT training and Introduce into the world of mental health? Absolutely. And I apologize if I, pass, I speak kind of fast because I want the world to know as much as I can share with them. That's right. uh, but in 2008, I was on patrol. I just left the DWI unit. But basically, if I was talking to you, uh, I was arresting you because you were intoxicated and driving. At this point, that's all we really kind of knew as law enforcement dealing with somebody's possibly self medicating. But there was a little, little thing that came around at roll call. They'd call and check and make sure everybody showed up for work. And they said, anybody want to go to this class called Crisis Intervention Team Training, dealing with persons with mental illness? And I will be transparent with both you and any of your listeners that's listening. Uh, when it came to mental illness, that's the last call police officers want to go to. Uh, we don't want to do that. If you're a robber, or you're, you're assaulting your family member, I'm your guy. I can take care of that. I can chase you down. I can put you in jail for these things. I'll protect you. Uh, you're in a car crash. I'll comfort your family members. But if you tell me you have a mental illness, didn't want anything to do with it, being completely transparent. And that's because we weren't trained in it until this training came along. And now with crisis intervention team training, uh, you know, we, we went to this class and sat through all these lectures. Of, it was, became law enforcement-led and community-supported. In other words, we had police psychologists from experts in the field speaking to us. And that was really interesting. I liked the training, but there was one thing that happened on a Thursday, and it's called family perspective. And basically what that meant was, 
there's a little blonde lady in her 70s. She identified herself, and I've gotten her permission to, to speak on her behalf. Her name was Janine Owens. She said that her husband had passed away, and all the her, her other children had left except for Jeff. And Jeff was six foot four, suffered severely with uh, schizophrenia, and if you spoke of medication, doctors, policemen, um, he became physically violent. And he would destroy the home, he would threaten her. And she looked at all of us in the eye, and with a very caring look and sadness in her heart, she said, I understand that one day, one of you police officers will have to come to my home, and you'll have to shoot and kill my son. And that's when everything changed in my life. It changed in the way I police, the way I work, because I'm a parent. First and foremost, I put on a badge, <clears throat> I put, I wear a gun, I do all these things, but first and foremost, I'm a parent to two wonderful children. And I couldn't imagine my reality in my life, somebody telling me that uh, my son has cancer and you're going to have to come to kill my son. But just because it was a different illness, it was, it was mental illness, that their reality was, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to come and kill my son. And that was a, a very big struggle for me. Um, and it was shortly after that, my partner, one, one of my other partners, we took an initiative and said, let's do something. And we approached, we got an appointment with our police chief and said, we want to start a mental health unit. You're listening to Future City on WYPR, and I'm Wes Moore, and I'm talking by phone with Officer William Kasberg, who's part of a special mental health unit in San Antonio. Now, we're actually going to play a clip, but before we play a clip, I just have a quick question for you, Officer Kasberg. Uh, before you joined the mental health unit, uh, how many arrests a month were you doing? And since you joined the mental health unit, how many arrests are you now doing a month? I was probably averaging 30 to 33 arrests a month uh, for DWI. Um, and that, and I was on DWI unit for six and a half years. And then shortly after that, um, when we did, were able to create the mental health unit, I think probably, uh, in my almost nine years of doing full-time mental health, I think I've had to arrest four people. <laughs> so, so we're now going to listen to a, a quick clip from a video from the mental health channel made about, uh, made about your work. And in it, Officer Kasberg and his partner get a call about a woman outside a restaurant who's naked agitated and screaming and because they've just had some cross-training with the fire department EMTs they have a hunch about what might be happening take a listen hey partner did you just hear that call come out man uh, we're gonna head over to the restaurant downtown 10-4 and did he say that she was actually uh, undressed yeah 10-4 said she was naked out there 7820 we got a call for that and we're already heading that way do me a favor go ahead and start EMS for us could be an excited okay, delirium deal the what happened? They told me to come out here and he already had her down. Okay. Uh, she's naked. The first thing we thought of when we heard the call was a possible excited delirium case. We've had several fatalities through this. Typically they'll end up having some kind of cardiac arrest and we end up losing them. You're going to be safe right now. You're safe. She kept mentioning someone was trying to attack her. So it could have been some hallucinations she was experiencing. Stay still, man. Stay still. Stay, stay still. still. Stay still. Relax. 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 Okay. relax. Okay. One of you. Okay. You're gonna stay with us. Just relax. You can hold on. Keeping her calm, talking with her, keeping her focused is gonna be the main objective you're at this point. Please. We're gonna keep you safe. You relax. Please cover you're, that. We're gonna keep you safe. She's real hot, man. Her body temperature was increasing. That's usually a, a pretty dangerous sign. You're not in trouble. Okay. Now, if she doesn't get immediate medical attention, she could go into shock. Can y'all hold her head? There we go. You ready? She'll get transported to the nearest hospital for further medical treatment and get her stabilized, make sure that she's going to be okay tonight. 
One of us riding in uh, the EMS unit with EMS helps keep the patient focused while EMS can do their job and get the accurate vitals before they arrive to the emergency room. Had we not had this training with the fire department, our paramedics, and had the knowledge of what excited delirium is, it's probably saved her life. That collaboration is just priceless. Audio there from a police interaction in San Antonio, Texas. And one of the officers that you heard in that clip is Officer Kasberg, who is actually joining us on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. And, and Officer Kasberg, I, I tell you, just, you know, not even just from, from personal experiences, but I think there's a, there's a lot of folks who are listening to this show right now who, uh, who even the basic interaction that you had with, uh, with that woman outside that restaurant just would, is, feels very unfamiliar about the normal interactions, uh, you know, that we see and hear about. So I want to bring some other voices into the conversation, but before I do, can you just uh, tell me a, a bit about how that interaction it was different than the type of interaction you might have had with that woman before this training? What was interesting about that call specifically is that was what we refer to as an excited delirium. That's somebody that has probably more than likely a mental illness, that specific person you heard yelling did. Um, she'd also been self-medicating with a uh, with a with very heavy narcotic, uh, and typically their core temperature will actually rise to the point where they're next to death. Um, and typically these cases end in death uh, because of the medical causation of the drugs and the mental illness. Um, and typically the law enforcement and interaction with that is use of force. It's typically very negative because these people are so out of control. Um, they're out of touch with the reality to the point where they're um, they realize that they're they're basically cooking inside, and they remove their clothing. Um, and through our training, we now train with our fire department, and we respond uh, appropriately together. And so this case here, we identified what we were dealing with through our training. We were able to call our EMS unit, and they actually have uh, a lot of heavy narcotics on their board that actually can uh, relax and calm the patient so there is no use of force. And it also ended in saving uh, this patient's life. Uh, you know, the hospital was met, met us with the right medication, the emergency medication in the in the parking lot. Uh, took this person in and got her into services. But that's exactly what it would have happened um, had we not um, had that specific type of training. Officer William Casberg of San Antonio's Police Department Mental Health Unit. Uh, he's joining us by phone. And Officer Casberg, uh, I ask you to just stay with us if you can. Um, uh, but now joining us in the studio is my next guest, Steve Johnson, who's the Director of Rehabilitation and Treatment at Behavioral Health System Baltimore. BHSB is a, is a city system for care for substance use and mental illness, which partners with criminal justice and schools. And most importantly for us today, works closely with the Baltimore Police Department to implement that CIT training for officers that we mentioned earlier. Now, we're, we're going to have uh, and hear more from a sergeant who's actually helping to lead up that effort uh, later in the show. But, uh, but for now, Steve, I'd like to welcome to you to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And so, you know, we've heard a little bit about where San Antonio is today. Uh, but what I also would love to hear from you is also where, where Baltimore is today. Uh, you know, do we have these forms of CIT teams? Do we have these centers? Uh, you know, how, what is Baltimore's response in a similar type of situation as we stand right now? So we have been working in partnership with the Baltimore City Police Department and some of our other partners to implement uh, training for police officers since about 2004. And in recent years, our focus has been on training recruits who are going through the police training process. And we provide a week of training in 
teaching the skills that the officer was describing in terms of how to interact with someone who may be experiencing a mental illness, a substance use disorder, or developmental disability, and how to de-escalate the situation and calm it down so that um, then they can work towards a resolution. What we're doing now is planning a number of next steps to try to be sure that with this training is available for the entire police force who can come into that training and relate the training and what we're teaching them to experiences that they've had on the street to be able to understand how they might approach those situations differently that would result in a more positive outcome for them. The second thing that we're doing is trying to build a much stronger partnership between the police department and our mental health and substance use service system. Uh, we have two crisis providers in the city, Baltimore Crisis Response and BCARS, the Baltimore Crisis Response serves adults and BCARS serves children and families. And it's crucial that the police department and those providers work hand in hand to be able to respond to these crises and resolve them and also provide services to those individuals that will meet their needs. And part of that is about including all members of the community in the process. Mm -hmm. So we have an advisory committee that meets on a regular basis that we're building and trying to include representatives from the community, from our mental health system, yeah. from our system of providing supports to families, from the police department and other institutions in our city so that everyone is a part of the process. That's one of the most critical parts of this because we need to hear the voice of the entire city and we ultimately the work that we're doing needs to represent what will best meet their needs. And so we need to have them involved in the process so that they're giving us advice on how to implement things, that we provide them with information about how it's going, data, both the good news and the bad news, so that they can then say, well, we think you need to change this, and we think you're doing great here, so that it's an active, ongoing process of input from the community. Steve Johnson, the Director of Rehabilitation and Treatment at Behavioral Health System Baltimore. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. So we're going to take a break now. But when we come back, we'll hear from the national perspective on this issue and hear about community ripple effects of recent police mental health training here in Baltimore. Stay with us. I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City, a show where we move the conversation from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next. In our last segment, we spoke with Officer William Kasberg of the San Antonio Police Department about a model of mental health policing that's diverted almost 100,000 people from jail to mental health services over the last 10 years. We also heard from Steve Johnson of Behavioral Health System Baltimore about the scene here and the next steps they and the Baltimore Police Department are working on together. And now, to get the national perspective on what's happening in these two cities and how they fit into the picture of changes and best practices across the country, we're joined by Ron Honberg, Senior Policy Advisor at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Health Illness. Welcome to the show, Ron. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, so Ron, we've now had a chance to hear about the mental health crisis uh, that's taking place in policing and what it looks like in San Antonio and in Baltimore. Can you help us to understand those two places in context? Yeah, I mean, what San Antonio and Baltimore are experiencing is really a microcosm for what virtually every community, every city, but even rural communities are experiencing across the country. The fact is that um, we have inadequate mental health services, and particularly inadequate services for people who have ongoing needs. Um, So our system is oftentimes very crisis-oriented. Their interventions are not available for people until people go into crisis, and then only as long as necessary to alleviate the crisis. And so for any other health condition, if someone were to call 911 because a family member was having a heart attack, the emergency medical uh, personnel would respond. But if someone calls 911 for someone who is having a, a psychiatric emergency, we send the police. And the police have, in virtually every community in this country, become frontline responders to people in crisis. But, Ron, explain this to me. You know, the, the, the prison system in this country is the largest mental health provider in this country. Correct. But but we have in, inadequate mental health services. So explain explain how that works. Well, because, you know, mental illnesses are like any other illnesses, uh, any other medical illnesses, uh, particularly chronic illnesses. Uh, uh, people need access to ongoing treatment and uh, service, supportive services. You know, that's true for diabetes and, and for uh, cardiovascular disease as well. So if you could imagine a system where someone didn't have access to insulin, didn't have access to help in maintaining diet or nutrition, that services would only be available to them when they went into a diabetic coma. That's what we have with the mental health system. So even when we get people stabilized, there's oftentimes no system in place to provide ongoing supports to people. And then, you know, there's also a complicating factor, and that is when people become, people with mental illnesses, and particularly serious mental illnesses, become highly symptomatic, sometimes they're resistant to the idea of getting help. Um, So the situations become emergencies, and that's when the police get called. So can you talk a little bit about the the 21st Century Cures Act that President Obama signed into law? And I know you and your organization were responsible uh, and, and, and were involved in these Senate hearings. Can you talk about what we can expect, the impact that we expect for that to have? Yeah, I mean, our work is just starting. We were very pleased that the act passed. It's really the culmination of about four years of work to try to get a comprehensive mental health reform bill passed in in Congress. And um, the bill combines um, new uh, uh, initiatives on mental health, and particularly for people with serious mental illness, with some policy changes at the federal level that we think potentially could be very helpful. The bill didn't necessarily address everything that the sponsors wanted it to address. You know, there was a process of compromise. uh, That's understandable. But the bill that passed was a good one. And it also included some important criminal justice reforms, resources for, for CIT programs, you know, for police training and for police partnerships with the mental health system, uh, resources for specialty courts like mental health courts, resources uh, for services to help people re-enter communities after incarceration. All of that is is really good, but only if it's properly implemented and only if it's adequately funded. So we think that the act 
lays a foundation for progress at the federal level. But again, we will have to sustain the attention to mental health and, and substance abuse that that was, uh, you know, we really have had in Congress over the last year or two. Uh, we, the last thing we want is for Congress to conclude that, well, we've addressed the mental health problem now because, in fact, this is just a start. Uh, uh, there's a long way to go. And um, I don't want to suggest that uh, this bill in and of itself is going to solve the crisis, but it is a helpful step forward. That's, uh, that's Ron Honberg, the Senior Policy Advisor at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. uh, My pleasure. So if you're just joining me, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. We talked a lot this hour about the importance of equipping veteran officers with special skills to respond to people in a mental health crisis. So joining me now in the studio are two people who've had real hands-on experience uh, on that effort here in Baltimore, both Troy Smith, who's a retired San Antonio police hostage negotiator, who now runs a company called Winter Circle that trains police officers, and Katie Barrett, who's a senior at Coppin State University, who recently surprised herself by participating in a training uh, and also hanging with, by, hanging with us uh, by phone is San Antonio police officer William Casberg and also his partner uh, Jesse Trevino who helped train fellow officers I want to thank you all for joining us uh, here on Future City oh we appreciate the opportunity thank you and so 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 Troy why don't I start with you so I understand uh, last spring uh, on the one-year anniversary of the Baltimore uprising uh, you organized a training on Coppins campus and uh, where something like 50 officers from across the state came uh, and the country came to learn uh, about a better way to police a better way to deal with these interactions with community in fact officer Casper was also there uh, as part of that as well uh, what were some of the things that uh, that you learned and particularly uh, as you first got there not everybody was happy to see you so can you talk a little bit about that experience the relationship between the community and law enforcement was so bad you know everybody realized that there was a problem but nobody wanted to communicate to try to to solve it the community was frustrated law enforcement was frustrated so what we did is we came in the first time the first training we did it was a it was a actually actually shooter training so what we did is we brought law enforcement in the community together and we put them in the simulators and we let them see how each other responded and see that there were so many similarities in the way they behaved in that situation so both the community and law enforcement realized hey we're on the same team here when we did that first one, the students didn't want us on campus originally. They were upset that the police were on campus. The police didn't want to be there. The young lady sitting next to me, Katie, she was very vocal. And we love that because the only way you find out if your program is going to be successful is by dealing with the people who really don't want you there. If they have buy-in to it and they believe in it, then everybody else will start to believe in it. And so, so, so Katie, when, when Troy first came up uh, and said, hey, listen, we're on the same team, what was your reaction to that? The biggest frustration that I had with them being on our campus is the fact that we didn't know that they Mm. were there. And we have to take into account of the students. Um, Coppin State University is located on North Avenue. We all know the economic status of those people are not as high as others. And a lot of our students do come from the surrounding community. So when you have gunshots going off in the next room while you're eating you don't know if people have ptsd so you don't know what that triggers so me being a social work major it's kind of like i have to stand up for my colleagues and uh, my peers so when troy walked over i said why are you guys here like you don't know how this is affecting us and that's when he said why don't you just you know see what we're doing and when we went into the simulation 
we learned what they actually had to go through. Like we were working hand in hand with the officers and we saw how nerve wracking it can be. And if you're not placed with a certain group of people, you wouldn't know how to react to them, especially if you have these negative influences of the media showing African-Americans, people of color in negative light. So the officers, you can tell that they were at ease when they did have a lot of the students come to participate. So ever since then, we've been partners ever since. How how much did that day change your perspective in terms of how they do their job and, and the type of interactions you can have with them? Um, well, I'm president of the National Council of Negro Women, yeah. and we've been around since 1935 yeah. um, advocating for our communities. So when I did meet with Key and Troy, it didn't hit me until like a few months later, until we did the trainings. Mm. When I spoke at the um, conference and I saw the chief, um, what was the Baltimore police the chief? Commissioner. Yes, the mm-hmm. commissioner um, and professionals that deal with people in mental health and how we, the students were involved. Um, my job as the president of the National Council of Negro Women, we gathered students to participate in the crisis intervention training. And you can tell these officers and um, social workers and grievance counselors, they had no idea of what they were doing when it came to de-escalating situations. Um, there was one situation where um, a student was role-playing, trying to get over a bridge, but where she was going to work, that's where she had an accident. So she was thinking about what had happened to her in the past, and it was up to the police officers to role-play and try to de-escalate the situation and possibly get her out of the car to get her out of that stressful situation. And through coaching and teaching with the with Jesse, Joan, Will, and the other police officers that came, they were able to do that. We had an officer who said, if it wasn't for this training, I would have just yanked her out of the car. But because of this training, I was able to speak to her to get her out of the car and to de-escalate the situation. And it's one thing for you to read that in an article of a police officer saying, I would have just pulled her out of a car. But it's another thing for somebody who you know is getting paid to do this job who would actually say something like that. So it's kind of breathtaking. It it makes you realize how these trainings are important in society. It's amazing because it shows just the importance of, of, of understanding, right? That we understand each other's perspectives and what we're dealing with. But, but Troy, one question I have too is, you know, this is a city, and, and, and Katie knows, this is a city with a, a very long and fraught history of policing and community relations. And these are, these are, not, these are not new phenomena. These are things that are generational. Why Baltimore? Why, why come here and do this work? I'm a product of Grambling State University. My youngest sister went to Morgan State University. We have nieces and nephews here. We had an opportunity to see what was going on in Baltimore and the passion that we have for wanting to make a difference. I came up here and said, you know what, how can we help? People in the community rallied around and said, listen, we want, we want to see change. The police department said, we want to see change, but nobody seemed to have the solution as to, we're willing to communicate with each other. When we talked to them, we said, why wouldn't we do something in a community where it's affecting the majority of the community? You don't learn effectively if you don't have uh, multiple ways of training. Most people put law enforcement in a room, give them an eight-hour presentation or a 16-hour presentation and say, go out there and do it. Well, law enforcement, they're not confident that way. 
So our philosophy and our way of teaching is as we train, so shall we fight is what we say. So if we bring the students in that have been a part of it, that have lived that culture, seen that community, how the situation has occurred, and they're bringing real situations to the officers and the officers end up being successful there, they'll feel confident about doing it out in the street. And now Officer Kasberg, who's uh, who's joining us from San Antonio, actually from uh, his his mobile office right now, responding to calls. How did your time up here in Baltimore shape the type of police officer that you are in San Antonio? Uh, you know, sir, uh, one thing I want to say is I want to want to piggyback on Troy and Katie. We love you and we miss you. Um, is that just because we have a different zip code, it doesn't change who we are? Um, we're still a community. They're a community. Our families up there, our, our brothers and sisters in blue, they're serving that community. Um, one thing I really want to say is um, you can put a lot of science to the training. You can put a lot of energy into it. You can create a presentation. But one thing we live on is nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's what we've really taken up there. Anybody can present and teach something off a, a presentation. But what me and my partners who accompanied with Troy is we bring passion we, we realize the, the success and the value of it. Uh, what we do is not theoretical. We live this every single day. Uh, we, we, we really live what we preach and what we teach. Well, that is uh, San Antonio Police Officer William Casberg joining us by phone. Uh, and also here in the studio, we've had uh, uh, police trainer Troy Smith and also Coppin State University student uh, Katie Barrett, uh, who are joining me. I uh, want to thank all of you, not just for, for being with us on the show, but thank you for the humanity and what you're bringing the work that you do. So bless you guys. We thank appreciate you. it. Thank, thank you for being in the thank forefront you. of thank this. Thank you, Mr. Moore, Troy, and Katie. We thank you. You're welcome. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City on WYPR. After the break, we'll talk with Leon Evans, who's the CEO of San Antonio's Center for Healthcare Services, who personally reshaped the city's whole landscape of mental health care, and therefore, the possibilities for mental health policing. Stay with us. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City, and welcome back to the show. In our last segment, we heard about the national movement to improve policing of the mentally ill and talk with folks who recently put that theory into practice in a police training at Coppin State University. Joining us now by phone is Mr. Leon Evans, CEO of San Antonio's Center for Healthcare Services, who personally reshaped the whole landscape of mental health care and therefore the possibilities of mental health policing. It is great to have you on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Wes. So, Leon, before I ask you about the bigger picture in San Antonio, can you tell me a little bit about your background and mental health work? And and, and I heard that uh, you used to wrestle bears when you were younger. Is that true, or is that that an urban myth? No, uh, yeah, that's that's true. I actually I went to college on a wrestling scholarship and wrestled on a couple all star teams and 
had an opportunity to wrestle a couple of bears, so I did it. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Great transition in the work you're doing now, I guess. So, uh... Yeah, and the, the pl- place I, I live now is called Bear County, so my wife laughed and said, uh, you, get, you get to wrestle your third bear. <laughs> Well, can can you tell me a little bit about uh, the bear that you're wrestling now, which is how we how we can incorporate mental health uh, training into the way we think about policing? Sure, uh, Wes. Before I had this job, I was the director of the Texas Department of Mental Health, Mental Retardation's Community Service Division, and uh, of course, uh, with uh, part of that job was working with other state agencies. And in that job, I became painfully aware of all the people that were in the in the prison system. Uh, who were there because of their mental illness and the, and the failure of the community coming together to get these people into treatment. So uh, people with severe mental illness uh, across the United States, they die 25 years sooner than the general public because they usually go undiagnosed and they're self-medicating with alcohol and drugs and their illness is so debilitating they, they don't work and so they uh, end up homeless a lot because their illness is so painful for family and friends. They have poor diets, so they're dying of congestive heart failure and liver disease and diabetes and all, all these things, not their mental illness. And, uh, the, of course, the chronically and persistently homeless are people with mental illness, and they are usually uh, have co-occurring substance use disorders. And all those things are very expensive uh, to the public. Our jails and prisons are absolutely packed uh, with people with severe mental illness who do very well if you get them to treatment. In fact, I, I can uh, explain that. I can actually prove that treatment works for this population. And in addition to that, you can talk to any of your emergency rooms uh, there in the uh, Baltimore area, and they'll probably tell you that their emergency rooms are packed with people with mental illness. Most of them are unfunded. They show up a lot uh, because they're not getting their mental illness treated. So uh, this is a, a huge problem and can be addressed. So the, the whole point of, of Future City is the fact that we, we want to identify best practices that are taking place around the country and talk a bit about them in context of, of here. But the truth is, 10 years ago, it seems like not many people would argue that San Antonio was a best practice in the way that they dealt with uh, you know mental health and how the mental health system worked. In many ways, people would argue that it was in crisis. When you think about it, where it was when you first came to San Antonio, where did you even begin to start? How did you even begin the process of revamping the system? Well, it's all, it's all about leadership, Wes, because when I was the state director, I actually tried to uh, develop some pilots and they came up with some really good models. But when I got down to implementing the models, and the models required people to work together and share resources, people said, that's a really good model, but not with my money or my staff. So when I got here, I knew if I wanted to try to get some change actually implemented, I needed to get the community leadership on board, and it's really about who's going who's gonna to make us work together. So uh, I went uh, when I got here and talked to our newly elected county judge, a guy named Nelson Wolf, who's still the county judge, and I explained the problem. Of course, he's very bright and got it, and I said, Judge, uh, would you help bring our community together? So he did. He wrote a letter, got the uh, mayor to co-sign it, and he charged this committee with starting to look at these diversion programs. And so over the last 15 years or so, this has morphed into this uh, phenomenal community collaboration where you have uh, family and law enforcement and judges and, and health care providers and hospitals and, you know, the mental health system all working together. We keep a lot of data on cost and outcomes. We meet monthly. We have a continuous quality improvement environment situation. And if it doesn't work, we change it. 
how did you go about rethinking the funding? And, you know, because to ask people to change the way they fundamentally and historically structured funding on a certain issue, and you tell them, hey, there's a bigger point that we're missing, so we need to really rethink that. What was your process in making sure that the funding behind getting this work done and the collaboration behind the work, that you could actually make sure that that was in place? We didn't have any money to begin with, so we, we had to start with what we could first uh, afford to do, and that was train law enforcement officers. So uh, we started this crisis intervention training, uh, uh, the 40 Air course, which has lots of role playing. And once law enforcement officers are trained to recognize the signs and symptoms of mental illness and how to step back and de-escalate those behaviors so they don't get hurt and the public doesn't get hurt, they have to have a place they can go rather than jail or emergency room or putting somebody back on the street homeless. So the next thing we decided was we need a little crisis unit. So uh, we came together and we found the money to do that. and. And so over the years, we keep adding features, and we keep, like I said, we keep a lot of data on cost and outcome. So we can actually prove that over these last 15 years, the, the county jail is probably 2,000 beds less than it would have been. The homeless count downtown San Antonio is down 80 to 85 percent. Uh, the chronically and persistently homeless, you can Google the cost of homelessness to taxpayers. you find all kinds of studies. The cheapest I saw was about $30,000 a year. Uh, we have this high utilizer program where we work with hospitals and getting people into treatment that are, are packing the, the hospitals. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who wrote the the, the uh, tip uh, uh, the the book Tipping Point, he wrote an article for the New Yorker. Where he, yeah, it's called Million Dollar Murray, where he explains that the, this very small uh, portion of society really ends up, you know, dying early and being very costly uh, to society in all kinds of ways. Mr. Leon Evans, who's the uh, the CEO of San Antonio Center for Healthcare Services and also a former bear wrestler. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, and, and talking about the work that's not just taking place in San Antonio, but the work nationally. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. And today we're talking about policing and mental health. Uh, and now joining me by phone is Sergeant Johnson, who's a crisis, who's head of the crisis innovation team and coordinating all the Baltimore City Police Department efforts around this very issue. Sergeant Johnson, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Thank you. You've been involved in this uh, issue for quite a bit of time. What first got you interested uh, and involved in the crisis intervention framework of how the Baltimore Police Department does its job? Initially, I received best training within my agency in 2004, which is Baltimore's um, version of the Memphis DIT program, um, which is the Behavior Emergency Services Team training. So I received the training in 2004 as an officer, and the training assisted me and gave me a lot of different tools in helping me to um, deal with individuals that are experiencing mental health and behavioral health crisis. Um, most recently, I received the 16-hour um, CIT training from Winter Circle, as well as I went through our best training again and received some additional training as far as uh, trauma-informed care, as well as, in addition, help to assist us with dealing with individuals that are um, experiencing crisis. We've heard a lot today about the San Antonio model, about CIT, a little bit about BESS uh, that, you, that you just mentioned. Uh, but we know that Baltimore is doing a lot of things right now to rethink uh, how, we, how we build out these type of services. Can you talk a bit about what Baltimore is doing and particularly what's coming up in the next few months in Baltimore? Since 2009, all recruits um, have received training. Most recently, we've incorporated by adding veteran officers, some of our civilian employees, as well as our Baltimore City Sheriff Department, has been sending some of their deputy sheriffs 
to our training. We've also um, have been partnered with um, BHSD Baltimore, um, Behavioral Health Systems of Baltimore, and they will be assisting us with providing funding um, for clinicians for our CIT pilot program, which is slated to begin mid-January. And that pilot program will consist of an officer and a licensed clinician paired together as a team. And during the pilot phase, they will respond to the mental health crisis calls for service within the central uh, district, which is the pilot district. And so, so if I'm an, if I'm a new recruit, three years ago versus I'm a new recruit in February of 2017, how is my training different? I know in terms of you know the additional you know the weeks of training, but what exactly is going to be different about my training now that what didn't happen four or five years ago? I would say that we have added um, additional training offered, and we'll we're partnering with Baltimore Behavioral Health System, which will include lead training as well as the trauma informed care training, which well, not the trauma-informed care training in the lead not only helps you to deal with person in mental health or behavioral health crisis, it helps you to deal with anyone every day in all walks of life. So that's the addition that they will receive versus what someone received years ago. What what impact uh, do you foresee, uh, you know, this potentially happening on on on? the basics, things like, you know, arrest rates, uh, but also the interaction that you'll have uh, with community members and also with the service providers within the community? The goal is to improve officer and consumer safety and to redirect individuals from mental illness, uh, with mental illness from judicial systems to health care systems to get them the proper care and services that they need. Is there a target that Baltimore City now has about uh, the, the amount of, uh, of, of referrals to these type of services versus arrest? Is there, is there a number that Baltimore City is looking for? Uh, not at this time. It's, it's not basically a number, but I do know that we are kind of unique. Um, we do have our Baltimore Crisis um, Response Inc., who has their crisis response team, who is available to us to come out and assist um, with us with calls for service that they are able to respond to and help provide those consumers or individuals with additional services and treatments. We also have DCARS, which deals with child and adolescent um, individuals that are, have behavioral health or mental health crisis that have a response team that also is available to us that helps and assist us with people that are in these crises. So, so how is Baltimore Police going to measure success? How, how, so how do we come back in, in, in a year, in two years, and say this initiative was successful? What benchmarks are we looking for? I would say we are primarily looking for um, how we were able to improve our services within the community, um, divert those individuals to the appropriate services um, versus arrest or just going to emergency facilities and educating our public on what resources are already available to them that will assist them in um, providing better services for their loved ones and people that they know. Currently, we have our citizen, Citizens Academy um, that the police department has put on, and I went to the academy and spoke to those individuals that were there. And at the training, um, I was able to provide them with a card that we give to the officers to give to the individuals, the uh, citizens, that gives them numbers at their disposal that will help them deal with or assist them when they are in some type of crisis. Sergeant Johnson, uh, you know, you've got an incredibly difficult job because, you know, we're, we're now as a city uh, in a situation where the, uh, you know, where cynicism and, and skepticism is running high about how people think about policing and police community relations. As you're talking with, with uh, both law enforcement and community members alike, 
how do you tell them and how do you explain to them that this is important? I explain to them, um, basically, I give them examples of people that are experiencing traumatic incidents, people that are experiencing mental health um, incidents, and that we as a police department are here to help assist and to provide services to help them to address whatever issues that they are, are dealing with. Sergeant Johnson, Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator for the Baltimore City Police Department. Sergeant Johnson, thank you so much for your time, and we wish you the best of luck in all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Have a good day. As we're getting ready to wrap up the show for this week, I just want to leave us with a few final thoughts. San Antonio gave us a good model for a functional relationship between the police department and mental health providers. To be clear, Baltimore is making progress, but we still lack the two key components that make their approach so successful. The first, a designated plainclothes mental health team, and the second, a 24-hour crisis center where they can actually deliver the people they're serving safely. Now, whether you view this issue as a moral one, where we are relying on our criminal justice system to plug the holes of a broken mental health system, or as a financial one, where we know in San Antonio alone, more than 100,000 people have been sent to treatment and diverted from jail and ERs over the last eight years, which has resulted in nearly $100 million saved in that city. We know that solving this challenge will be a key component of our future city. Future City is produced by Mary Wiltenberg and edited by Aaron Hankin. With special thanks today to Kate Farenholt of NAMI, Maryland, to Kristen Savicki of the Louisiana's Office of Behavioral Health, and to Gigi Wirtz of the Baltimore Community Foundation. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is at Westmore1. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. You can also hear this episode and past episodes online at wypr.org slash future city. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Funding for Future City is provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.